Hello and welcome back to Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel. Now, I originally had a completely different episode lined up, but then Putin decided to pull some shit and, well, I guess an episode about Russian imperialism is probably appropriate these days. Uh, But before I begin the usual intro, if you are listening on Podcast Addict or Apple Podcasts, please leave a review or just rate it. You can also find us on a number of streaming sites, including but not limited to Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and of course the website wanderingtheedge.net, where you can check out any of the previous episodes and any sources. Um, And just a warning, I will swear a lot, like a lot, a lot during this episode because... I'm going to get mad and frustrated and my response will be swearing. Um, But now let's take a look at one example of Russian imperialism in the center of Kiev, the Pachevska Lavra. So I sat and thought for a long time about what tourist or travel destination could be linked with Russian imperialism. And then like a freaking light bulb went off in my head and I thought Pachevska Lavra. This is the famous cave monastery of caves and that's what it literally translates to. It is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site and was founded in 1051 by Anthony a monk who was originally from cave in Rus. He went to Greece for his monastic studies and then returned to cave and settled in a cave that overlooked the Dnipro River and created a monastery there. Now it began to expand and by the 13th century it became an important cultural and educational center. It was then destroyed in 1416 by the Mongol horde rebuilt about 50 years later and continued to be dominant in religious life going forward. In 1721, uh, all the buildings burnt down, and so the great rebuilding or restoration began. I think the majority of today's buildings come from this time period. This includes the Great Lavada Bell Tower, which is in a neoclassical design with Dorian, Ionic, and Corinthian columns. The clock has only stopped once, in 1941, when the Soviets decided to blow up the Dormation cathedral inside the Lavra complex, which whole messed up historical paradox of this place that I'll get to in a bit. Now, the cathedral was originally built in the 11th century. It was converted into a museum park by the Soviets in 1928. And in 1941, when the Germans captured Kiev, the Soviets decided it was a great idea to completely destroy the city's main street. That's Rishchatik along with a couple of buildings in the Lavra complex. This was based on Stalin's order of scorched earth, which also makes no fucking sense why you would destroy a cathedral in a monastery. But the Soviets don't really make any sense sometimes. Anyway, for some reason, only the bombs under the cathedral were detonated and it was completely destroyed. The Soviets, by the way, blamed the Nazis for this, just like the Katyn massacre, even though Red Army sappers were killed as they ran from the cathedral right before it exploded. And this stupid myth has been infused in the Soviet mind frame. I've 
been to this place a couple of times and it was the one time I went on my own while living in Kiev that I went into the museum portion of the Lavra and they even have that information in the museum but when you go out and ask people what happened in 1941 they all say well the Nazis did it also no one in that entire place will be nice to you or tell you any tourist information so if you go on your own have fun figuring it out now, you can go and pay and go inside, or uh, I think you can enter without paying on a Sunday during their church services time. The main gates into the Lavra are known as the Gate Church of the Trinity, and it is fairly impressive. Uh, it was built in the early 1100s and became um, the main church of the monastery when the Dormation Cathedral was destroyed in 1240 by the Mongols. Famous academic, uh, Petro Mohila founded a school at the monastery's hospital, which then became the Cave Academy bearing his name today. Even before you enter the gates, uh, you get to see some exterior oil paintings on the gate, and it's pretty decent, typical cave in Rus architectural style. But the middle portion is in a Ukrainian Baroque or Cossack Baroque style as it was restored in the 17th century. I also want to say that Hetman Ivan Mazepa was one of the main initiators of the Lavra's reconstruction, which is something I remember our tour guide telling us the first time we went here back in 2001. Oh, and if you're a female, you have to have your head covered and long skirts on. If you don't have that, you can rent it from them. I would bring it. It was a bit icky. Now, Mazeppa was also instrumental in rebuilding the refectory church, which is like the main church where the monks live. I think it was then redesigned a couple of times because why leave an architectural symbol of Cossack power in Kiev? See? Linking it to Russian imperialism. Anyway, there's other buildings that you can check out, but you should go and see the caves. Now, if you're claustrophobic, don't because the caves are very narrow, but there is a church down there along with some living quarters that you could check out. There are also catacombs with over 100 burials located there, including the famous cave in Rus knight Ilya Muromets, the writer of the primary chronicle Nestor the Chronicler, the daughter and son of cave in Rus ruler Voldemir Monahmach, and the fucker Yuri Dolhoruki, who basically founded Moscow. There's also the Prime Minister of the Russian Empire, who was killed in Kiev, Pyotr Stolpin, and the literal head of the second or third Pope of Rome, Clement I, who was killed by Emperor Trajan in 99 AD by being tied to an anchor and thrown into the Black Sea. Honestly, I have no idea why his head is there, but whatever. Anyway, that first trip there was fine, mainly because we had a guided tour and weren't really paying attention. I then went with a friend and by myself when I lived there, but the most educational experience came from an ex-boyfriend who took me there as a date. I know it was weird. That's why he's my ex. I don't actually remember his name either. It was from him that I learned of the influence of Russian imperialism onto this site. Back during the Russian Empire, uh, the Tsar decreed that the Lavra was the center of the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine. And it has been that for centuries now. So they get money not only from Russia, but also from Ukraine, but they get their orders from Moscow. They are overtly pro-Russian. Like, they were known not only to finance, but launder money for the corrupt pro-Russian oligarchs in Ukraine. 
they don't give a shit about the actual normal regular people either. I remember this ex of mine who was helping displaced children from eastern Ukraine get settled in Kiev. Anyway, he told me the Lavra church hierarchy refused to give even a single room for these children in the Lavra or even offer them free food. The other thing he made me notice was the wealth of these priests. When we walked in, they drove in with their Bentleys and Mercedes and other high-class brands. They were escorted by their own private security. Their wives were dripped in gold and jewelry. All of this wealth came from those little old ladies who have absolutely nothing but their illusions that if they give their last hard-earned money to these assholes who don't know anything about Jesus or, you know, God, that these little babushka, they think that if they do this, they'll, they'll like go to heaven because that's the way it was hundreds and hundreds of years ago. There's also, by the way, a website dedicated to women who are looking for priest husbands, specifically because they know they will live the good life if they marry a priest in Ukraine. So anyway, if you've never been here, I guess it's a good thing to see. Go on a Sunday and don't pay the entrance fee, though. No point in financing the already wealthy. Okay, so in all honesty, I've been working on this episode for like a month. I usually pre-tape a lot of the episodes and then research for the next couple of ones. And so this episode was originally supposed to be like months down the line. But then Putin decided to put up a stink and here we are. The problem for me was that every time I started to write the script, I would get mad. And then I would have to stop for a while because, well, you know, Putin who will. So let's get into this, shall we? So the example of the Lavda would basically be an example of Russian religious imperialism. You're either of the so-called true faith or you're our enemy and we will convert you whether you like it or not. But I don't really want to talk about that. What I do want to start off is with this. There's this weird phenomenon in the West that views Russian imperialism in this really rosy light. Like you take British imperialism or American imperialism and it's like the worst thing in history. And I'm not here to debate whether it is or isn't. It's obviously not good. But that doesn't mean that Russian imperialism is any better. It's just different. The human costs and suffering attached to it are pretty high up there. And it's all framed in this stupid sphere of influence argument, which makes absolutely no sense. Like, so what? Based on this whole Ukraine is Russia's sphere of influence and they therefore have full rights to do whatever they want, their theory. Then everything America did in, let's say, Guatemala in the post-war period was fine and dandy because that's America's sphere of influence, right? The other weird thing is when academics love to justify anything and everything that comes from America because again, sphere of influence, and also it's America's fault somehow, to which I say, what the actual fuck is wrong with you? And how much are you getting paid directly or indirectly by Russia? So the main difference between Belgium, English, American, or any other imperialism and that of Russia was the fact that Russia didn't really have overseas colonies. 
classic imperialism as defined as a state policy practice or advocacy of extending power and, do and domination, especially by direct territorial acquisition or by gaining uh, political and economic control of another area, is essentially true to Russian imperialism. However, what began in the 1880s as the gradual colonization of Asia, Africa, and Latin America by European, American, and Japanese powers differed from the Russian Empire because the Russian Empire formed a single state. There weren't thousands of kilometers between the mother country or whatever you call it and its colonies. Whatever was acquired through forcible expansion just added to the periphery of the state. As British historian Geoffrey Hoskins put it, quote, Britain had an empire, but Russia was an empire and perhaps still is, end quote. British identity wasn't really identified by its colonies, mainly because they were so far away, well, apart from Wales, Ireland, and Scotland, whereas Russia was basically surrounded by its colonies. Now, medieval Muscovy, and here I'm talking about the principality of Kiev and Rus, which ended up creating the Russian Tsars and not Kiev and Rus centered in Kiev, it expanded mainly to its neighboring territories. Many of them were sparsely populated, and there's an idea that it should actually be viewed as the heir of the Mongol Empire. Now, this early empire was based on class distinctions, and those in the metropolitan areas, even of their colonies, began to view their identity as connected with the empire. Russian identity became inseparable from the empire. Russian imperialism, or Muscovite imperialism, toward Ukraine became pronounced in the late 15th century as it began its expansion into Mongol-controlled territory. Once Ivan the Terrible incorporated the Kazan and the Tatar Khanat into his domain in the mid-1550s, this marked the beginning of a Moscovite regional power. The idea that this Ukrainian land belonged to the Moscovy center came out of the need for its elites to disassociate themselves from their Mongol and Tartar past and stress a more Byzantine and thus European route. Thus, this idea that Kiev was the birthplace of Russia began. Now, the majority of Ukrainian land at this time wasn't actually under Russian control. The expansion quickened under Peter the Great and his Great Northern War in the early 1700s, which caused Russia to gain control over the European northern frontier, but also decisively began looking toward Ukraine. Now, a part of this need for control was Russia's fear that the former Lith Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which controlled a lot of Ukrainian territory, would try to reclaim those Ukrainian ter territories, and a need to establish a link between the so-called Little Russia and Moscow became important. They also began to abolish distinctly Ukrainian institutions. Now, before this time, Ukrainians played a very marginal place in Russian thought. Mikola Rybchuk, in his article from 2016, indicated that the Tartars were the most frequently mentioned ethnic references in Russian folk proverbs and expressions from the 17th century, followed by the Germans, Gypsies, Jews, and then the Ukrainians. Now, it was actually Peter the Great who rediscovered the importance of Kiev as being the mother of all Rus cities as he began to transform the shitty Moscovite principality into a Russian empire. He knew the importance of a European connection, and what better way to connect Moscow with Europe than through Kiev? Now, Catherine the Great was also instrumental in expanding the Russian influence over Ukraine, and this was partly due to the threat of the Crimean Tartars, but also because the empire always came first. 
Russian state building of its empire always obstructed its nation building attempts. It was always obsessed with the military power and territorial expansion because it helped cement um, patrimonial autocracy, but also helped expand environmental poverty, which then fed the need for further autocracy. It became this like vicious self-reinforcing circle of autocracy and expansion. Historian Jeffrey Hosking explains this better, quote, autocracy and backwardness were symptoms, not causes. Both were generated by the way in which the building and maintaining of empire obstructed the formation of a nation, end quote. But the primary subjects, those who now think of themselves as these superiors to others, were the ones who were actually the victims of this Russian state building, as it interfered with their own nation building and probably is one of the main reasons why Russians can't freaking just accept democracy. This is from Jacobus Delwaite's article from 2014, quote, Indeed, in Russia, state building obstructed nation building. The effort required to mobilize revenues and raise armies for the needs of the empire entailed the subjugation of virtually the whole population, but especially the Russians, to the demands of state service and thus enfeebled the creation of a community associations which calmly provide the basis for the civic sense of nationhood, end quote. Now, this Russian imperialism was partially explained in economic terms as its expansion provided it with natural and human resources, fertile soils, control over the main points and routes of trade, and was a means of securing its financial interests. And this was certainly true for those territories in Ukraine. Now, Ukrainians didn't really help themselves in this stupid situation, mainly because those higher ups who wanted to be part of the empire. Basically, they had the same rights and freedoms equal to those in the political center, a.k.a. St. Petersburg. They also had a sort of similar language and levels of development. But the Tsarist Empire also didn't really attempt to assimilate the Ukrainian peasantry because they thought of them as old little Russians who were like their dumb little brothers. But it did fear the emergence of the Ukrainian language and did everything to prevent its emergence and expansion. That is why it was so prohibited in the Russian Empire. It was also a threat because it was in conflict with the idea of a large-scale all-Russian national empire. A separate Ukrainian identity emphasized an antithesis to the great Russian nationality, and especially the idea of the great Russian empire. And maybe it was because there always existed this contradiction of national identity within the Russian Empire that two distinct stereotypes were created to describe Ukrainians. Those educated, loyal, but backward little Russians. And the Hohos. Those pesky peasants who were described as such in 1810 by some random ass prince during his stupid grand tour of Ukraine. And I quote, the hohol appears to be created by nature to till the land, sweat, burn in the sun, and spend his whole life with a bronzed face. 
he does not grieve over such an enslaved condition. He knows nothing better. He knows his plow, ox, stack, whiskey, and that constitutes his entire lexicon. He willingly bears any fate and any labor. However, he needs constant prodding because he is very lazy. He and his ox will fall asleep and wake up five times in one minute. I dare think this entire people did not owe a debt to well-mannered landowners for their benevolence and the respect of their humanity. The hoho would be difficult to separate from the Negro in any way. One sweats over sugar, the other over grain. May the Lord give them both good health. End quote. So yeah, fuck you. Mikola Ryabchuk describes this stereotyping as one of the colonial relationship where one group is the dominant superior position to the subaltern inferior position of the other. So we were lazy probably because we didn't particularly feel all that encouraged while having to be, you know, forced into labor, while our stupidity was probably due to the fact that we didn't particularly want to be beaten by our masters for doing something wrong. Now, this stereotyping is important as it legitimized uh, the imperial status quo and asserted a normality of their racist hierarchies. It also reinforced the superiority complex of the Russians and the inferiority complex of the Ukrainians. It was a form of banal colonialism and clearly reminiscent of American imperialism, especially when it comes to slavery. Now, this Russian imperialism flowed into the Soviet Union. Lenin, while saying some nice things about Ukrainianization and anti-imperialism and blah, 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 blah. He only really just wanted another Bolshevik-run republic. He wanted to expand his power, and that included Ukraine. And he used any bloody means necessary to gain that power in 1918, rather than just, you know, leaving us the fuck alone. I mean, this was a time period when the Red Army would literally hunt the streets of Kiev looking for anyone who spoke Ukrainian and shoot them. Now, Obviously, Ukraine was important. It was territorially large. It had a large population. Its agricultural industrial significance was huge. It was not only the breadbasket uh, that fed the cities and armed forces, but also the key to Soviet industrial projects. And so letting that go was hard, not only for the Tsarist Russians, but also the Soviet Russians and now the modern Putinist Russians. What did happen during the Soviet Union times was the crystallization of that whole Russia as a big brother bullshit. They were politically dominant and culturally superior, and this was instilled in Soviet film and mass media. And so the Ukrainian language and culture became more stigmatized as symbols of backwardness, primitiveness, and stupidity, which is a problem we see not only coming from the Russians, but also from those academics who only go to Moscow to study the Soviet Union. And only know Russian, but are somehow deemed Ukrainian experts. Cough, Walter Duranty, cough, cough. And now we get into the shit show that is modern Russia under Putin. Now, the current problem with Russia comes from sort of two angles Putin himself and the Russian post communist sensibility. Now, many scholars believe that Russian imperialist attitude toward Ukraine has been ingrained in the theory that all land belongs to the ruler. And so when an independent Ukraine came about, it was seen as the illegitimate bastard that was supposed to be led back to the family forcibly if need be. Same argument can be used with Georgian-Russian relations. Anyway, this idea that Ukrainians are 
almost the same people as the Russians is basically a deeply entrenched idea that Russian society and even among those Soviet citizens still alive in Ukraine. And therefore, Ukrainian political sovereignty is considered completely illegitimate. This idea and deeply negative views to Ukrainian nationalism or even the imagined fear of Ukrainian nationalism spreads throughout Russian society. Even so-called Russian liberals view Ukraine as part of their people, culture, and state. Mihailo Khodorovsky, for example, the former oligarch who was in prison because he was seen as Putin's enemy, supported Russia's annexation of the Krim. And Putin is the main imperial nostalgist of them all. To him, the Soviet Union was a great Russian-speaking empire that held world sway. What he doesn't understand was the exhilaration people felt when that empire finally fell apart, mainly because he himself wasn't there. He was in Dresden, uh, East Germany, working in the KGB office there. And so thought of the fall of the Berlin Wall as a personal tragedy. What he learned from his time there was that street movements and the power of rhetoric, specifically democratic, anti-authoritarian and anti-totalitarian rhetoric, was very dangerous. And so he created another tsardist state where his control is without limits. He and his people operate without any checks and balances, any ethics rules, without any transparency or taking advice from anyone. He doesn't give a shit if the regular Russian citizen suffers from economic sanctions or if they die because he wants to invade a neighboring country. He also understands that pro-democracy movements will hurt him and his friends. And that is why Ukraine is important. Because if Ukraine can become a normal functioning democracy where people have rights and the state functions normally, his people, the Russian citizens, might want to demand that from him. And so he's created a sort of new Russian imperialism, one that uses all modern variants. He has used his oligarchs to corrupt London, has his fingers in Germany and France, and has used his influence in strategic countries like Hungary and Serbia to hamper any European cooperation with Ukraine and Georgia. Ukraine obviously was important to the Soviet Union as it was important to modern Russia. It is the second most populous and second richest Soviet Republic. Currently, over 80% of Russia's gas to the EU transported via Ukraine, which is why that stupid Nord Stream pipeline is important to them because it cuts out Ukraine. The pipelines in Ukraine also account for 75% of EU oil imports from Russia and Central Asia. Ukraine also represented a large loss of the military industrial sector because of its mineral richness and expertise. So yeah, Russians miss us. Cool. But mm, we were also pretty horrible subjects, which is something you, that Russians tend to forget. Like, we don't listen, sometimes to our own detriment. We have constant revolutions, and I'm fairly sure there's been a rebellion or an insurgency in, like, one form or another, like, once a generation for the last several centuries. Why the fuck would you want us back under your rule? To just to cause more headaches? To influence your people? To overthrow you like we did Yanukovych? I mean, you can nuke us, but then I'm fairly sure we'll just turn into cyborg like zombies who yell Putin hulo while we try to rout you out of the Kremlin. 
Also, to those who, for some reason, blame NATO for Russia's imperialistic aggression towards Ukraine, I call bullshit. NATO and Russia were far more chummy in the late 90s and early 2000s than NATO and Ukraine ever was. For God's sakes, they signed a partnership and cooperation agreement in 1994. And who knows how much Russia got from NATO for cooperative military exercises and training. Never mind the technological knowledge that NATO countries introduced to post-Soviet Russian uh, army. Secondly, why do you think Poland and the Baltic states were so quick to join NATO? It certainly wasn't because Russia was a close ally and friendly nation. NATO's expansion wasn't an aggressive offensive move, but rather a defensive position taken by post-communist countries because they knew what Russian imperialism really means. Russia gets away with this neo-imperialism mainly because it keeps up the propaganda that Ukrainians are those poor little brothers who don't know what they're doing and it would be best for everyone if Russia just takes control over them. Thus Putin's remarks after Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014 because that's what it was. It wasn't separatists rather than it was a full-fledged invasion by the Russian army and we really shouldn't be mincing words about that one. Anyway, on March 18th, Putin declared that, quote, Kiev is the mother of Russian cities. Ancient Rus is our common source, and we cannot live without each other. Or, when he said, quote, We are not merely close neighbors. We are, in fact, as I have said many times, blind people, end quote. Thus, he should control Ukraine and no one really should have a say. Mind you, Putin's own propaganda toward Ukraine is usually as perplexing as it is contradicting one day we're all little brothers while the next we're all nationalist fascists like pick one and go with it because no ukrainian and this includes ethnic russians who live in ukraine is buying it anymore we can't have a military junta while there have been two democratically elected presidents already mikola Repchuk's article from 2016 actually does a, a great job in analyzing the confusing elements of Putin's propaganda war against Ukrainians. But I'll quote his analysis about this teeter-totter of images. Quote, The remarkable development of an overarching civic identity in Ukraine based primarily on common values rather than ethnic or linguistic markers poses a puzzle for Russian propagandists who still promote Ruski Mir in terms of a common history and religion, language, and culture. Sorry about that. Blood and soil, and still strive to protect Russian speaking compatriots in Ukraine and elsewhere, completely ignoring the fact that Ukraine is as much home for its Russian speakers as for its Ukrainian speakers, and that all of them consider each other to be compatriots rather than the citizens of the Russian Federation. The confusion forces Putin's ideologues to fluctuate somewhat chaotically between opposing and mutually incompatible statements. The Ukrainian government is anti-Semitic, and the Ukraine is ruled by oligarchic Jews. There is no Ukrainian nation, and all Ukrainians are nationalists. The Ukrainian state is extremely repressive, and there is no Ukrainian state, just total anarchy. The Ukrainian language doesn't exist, and Russians in Ukraine are forcibly Ukrainianized, to a degree that most fail to even recognize they have already undergone such Ukrainianization, and so vigorously deny that they have been forbidden to speak Russian, end quote. Putin tried to use those old Soviet and even Sada stereotypes that Ukrainians are Russians to just join in one common state where their brotherhood will be celebrated and the Russian speakers will rule once more in 2014. However, he miscalculated because Ukrainians weren't okay with his ideals anymore. 
more and more people, especially after eight years of warfare, have become aware that Russia isn't exactly the ideal state one would like to be a part of. I mean, in 2014, he invaded Krim because Ukrainians didn't want any more of his puppet president's mini Putinist kleptocratic system. Krim was easy because of the force of the Russian Navy in the peninsula and, well, because it was a peninsula. He even wanted to create the same bullshit that he has going uh, that has caused ongoing war in eastern Ukraine in cities like Odessa and Kharkiv, where the majority of citizens speak Russian. But he was in for a shock when those same people said, no, thank you. Putin failed because he still keeps on seeing Ukrainians as those same Soviet and Tsarist imperialist images lazy people who need to be forced into accepting the so-called Ruski Mir or Russian world. And let's face it, the examples he did manage to create, the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics or whatever they're calling themselves these days, aren't exactly something people would strive to join. They are literally zones of chaos and lawlessness. So what is Putin? He's an imperialist for sure, but why is he doing it? Maybe for economic reasons. I mean, Ukraine's earth and mines are its most significant economic exports. Is it power? Maybe. Is he working in annexation mode where he wants new territories for his empire? Or is he in an anxious imperialist mode where his fear of losing his position as a world leader is driving him? No clue. Uh, It probably has to do with the fact that he's turning 70 in October and probably going to die soon. And, well, he's an itty-bitty little man, so he probably also has little man syndrome. He's a bully. And, unfortunately, all he has to do is literally place some troops along Ukraine's borders and the world reacts. And instead of remaining calm and carrying on, as usual, helping Ukraine build up its economic and military power, invest more in its businesses and help integrate it into Europe. No, no. The West decides that this is the time to pull back and literally crash Ukraine's economy. Why aren't you flying to Ukraine, Lufthansa? You flew in 2014 when the war began. You did it when Russian annexed Krim. You continue to fly into the capital when the Russians shot down a passenger plane. But now you decide to stop? And Germany, what is wrong with you? Your excuses on owing Russia some historical favor are somewhat misconstrued. Have you forgotten the millions of Ukrainians the Nazi Germany shipped back as forced labor? How many of our Jewish citizens did you murder? How many of our villages were destroyed? How many of our towns were bombed to rubble? Because Hitler's idea that we were all subhuman anyway. So why bother keeping people alive? And where are the environmentalists in their protests over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline? Aren't we as global citizens supposed to be turning to greener energy? No, you got money from Russia and aren't opposed to it now? Got it. Thanks. And that is how modern neo-Russian imperialism works, my friends. Money greed, and an old-school stereotyping of Ukrainians. And many people, some who seem to be smart, are just gobbling it all in because of some twisted anti-Americanism and some distorted ideal of a communist system that A, no longer exists, and B, wasn't that great to begin with. Russia has, is, and always will be an imperialist state. It doesn't know how not to be. And Ukraine is completely fine being the buffer between it and the democratic ideals that are encompassed by by the European Union, but we can't do it alone. We need help, we need support, and we need you to stand up and say in a united voice that we stand with Ukraine for its right to its own self-determination, its own sovereignty, and its own way of life. And frankly, we need you to do the impossible 
and say no to Russian money because trust me, that money isn't clean. It's made on the backs of millions of Russians for the sole purpose to enrich a few. And with that, I'll end this episode. But I beg you to call your local government representative and tell them that whatever country you're in needs to stand up to Russia, to Putin, and stand with Ukraine. We've dealt with Russian imperialism for a millennia. We got it. We understand it. We no longer fear it. But we'll need help dealing with it. Slava Ukraini Hiroyam Slava. And that's it. Please remember to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Wander Edge Ukraine. Check out our website, wanderingtheedge.net, for source information and other interesting extras. And please, if you can, donate via the PayPal, which is located on how to help section on the website. And if you're listening to me on Apple Podcasts or Podcast Addict, please rate and review and leave um, a comment about anything, even any weird historical tidbit you have about your cultural peoples. And if you're listening to me on all the other streaming sites, thank you very much. And as always, happy wanderings, my friends. Mm-hmm.